and then the Christmas season become a time of forcing smiles upon our faces when we're here. We're going to enter in and just name a few things that, that make it difficult for us to really embrace this psalm today. And then we're going to talk about how the psalm actually has a whole lot of grace built into it that makes room for us to come with heavy hearts as we enter this day and this season. Helps if I turn the clicker on. When family is a source of pain and heartache, how many people are going to Thanksgiving dinner today? Family, extended family, quite a few. We're making a trip down to Dunville. People going tomorrow? Yep, yep. How many people are really looking forward to it? I won't make you show your hand. Oh, there's a few of you. There's a few of us who aren't. Going home to family brings up emotions and pain from how you were raised, from sibling arguments that have happened along the way, from dysfunction between your parents, from, from family members who have died and won't be there. And you'll feel the emptiness around the table. And when we enter into this psalm being called, being commanded even, shout to the Lord for joy, we're going to sit around that table and go, there's part of me that can't shout for joy. It's too heavy. It's too hard to do so today. Loved ones sick and in the process of dying. I've talked with the Vandenbergs numerous times over the last week and and as John has anticipated this surgery, that sense of this is a dangerous, difficult space to be in. And we've talked about, about life and death and dying, and it puts a heaviness into this season where some of the joy that we kind of culturally expect just isn't there because the weight of the sickness is heavy. Those of us who have been dealing with longer-term illnesses have this as an ongoing reality for us. Shouting for joy in the midst of the ongoing fighting of, of decay and brokenness in our bodies is not easy to do. When the political climate and commentary is as degrading as it is, I am a U.S. citizen. I take particular interest in the conversations happening south of the border right now. And it is hard. It's hard to sound joyful when you hear the things coming from candidates' mouths that you hear. You wonder, where in the world are you in the midst of this, Lord? And you want me to be joyful when these are the options in front of us? It's difficult to do. When natural disasters strike, destroying communities... The last death toll I saw coming out of Haiti was 800-some. It may be higher than that now. There are people who are still missing. There are communities just wiped out. Some of the, the villages have had the roads just washed away. They have no access in or out of those communities yet. It has wiped out that community. And even in places where there's not as much death, when you kind of look up through... Uh, through some of the areas that the hurricane's been going through, you recognize 
that, that there is a whole lot of the way of life that has been completely upended. Things that were stable and made sense and, and were normal and you kind of took for granted aren't there. Buildings and businesses destroyed. And it's not just the building and business, but it's all the families that have been provided for through those businesses that are having their life abruptly changed and not in a good way. There's a heaviness that comes as we witness these things again and again and again. I often think that our Thanksgiving psalms should really start with this. Psalm 13, which has the refrain of, How long, O Lord, how long? That is where more of our life is lived right now. More of our world's life is lived in that space of wondering where God is and how God is going to overcome all these things that threaten us and threaten the, the world that he has made, that he has made good and very good. And there is a deep longing for God to provide and to show up and do something, do anything. It's kind of a, Lord, where are you? Psalm 100 begins with these two verses. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. You know what I was deeply comforted by reading this in the Hebrew this week? Shout to the Lord, all the earth, is what it actually says. The word joy isn't there. And part of me, as I read that, went, ah, shout to the Lord. Now, there's a particular change that happens in here because you'll see at the end with joyful songs, it's actually with joyful shouting in the Hebrew. And it's a different word than the psalm starts out with. So it starts out with one word for shout, and the end at, of verse 2 is a different word for shouting that implies having joy with it. But the first word for shout, the other times it's used, anybody want to take a guess when they use it? Battle. It's a battle cry. It was used two times in battle. One, as they were about to run into the midst of the battle. Ah! That type of thing. Okay? We've had kids run at us that way, right? You know? This is the playground uh, not just the nice uh, Red Rover, Red Rover, send someone over. It, it, is, it is the two teams competing with each other. Think of a rugby match or a football match. You are going at it full speed. It's that grunting and that yelling. It's that deep guttural uh, noise that you make. The, the just loud, voracious, you are getting into the middle of a battle. And the other time it was used was when the battle was won. And it was the shout they would use as they were walking back to the city, to their families, to their homes. And they would shout, and that is the sense here. It is a shout that the battle is over. It is good. It is right. And there is joy in that. But mostly it is connected to the battle. It is still this battle imagery and language. Shout to the Lord! And in the context of the realities we live in, 
all those things that we, we just named there and the things we didn't name, those things that weigh on us, that is the battle we live in. And this psalm starts out by saying, Shout! Take it to the battle. In the midst of the battle, shout to the Lord, the one who is of all the earth. This battle cry is really about all the earth. And, and that's interesting to note here. It's really interesting to note because, because so many of the nations at that time, similar to nations today, you think about wanting God's blessing for you to bring the American language in. Almost every presidential speech ends with, and may God bless America. And people who are critical of that or critical of the president often say, and the rest of the world too. But it is that idea of, of we want things for ourselves. We want God's blessing for us. And here in the Psalms, the songbook of the people of Israel, the prayer book of the people of Israel, their shouting is a cosmic shouting. All the earth, everyone around the whole world, not just us, shout out to the Lord for what is plaguing all of us. This is fundamentally a psalm that calls us to recognize that our greatest enemy is not all these little symptoms we are experiencing. Our greatest enemy is that sin and the death connected that started way back when. And the whole earth groans under the weight of that sin, longing for the day when God will make all things new. And this shout that we're called to do at the beginning of this psalm is a crying out. It's a, Lord, help us all. Lord, save the earth. Please see what's happening. Come and rescue us. God, help us in the midst of the battle. Come here with us. That's the crying out. It's a recognizing that God is not just the king of us, but he is the Lord of the whole earth and the heavens. New Testament hits on this in a couple places when talking about what was accomplished in Jesus Christ's death on the cross and the resurrection that followed. It's what we baptized Adele into. It's not just a personal salvation. It is that, God's grace being applied to Adele as God's grace has been reached out to each one of us. It is something even more cosmic, bigger than that that God in Jesus Christ is reconciling all things to himself. And that Jesus is at work even now putting every enemy, including death, under his feet. That cosmic shout to the Lord that the whole earth is called to do is a crying out to God to say, God, we messed up and we need you to get in the midst of our mess and get us out of this because we can't do it ourselves. And we know our only hope is through your Son, Jesus Christ. Shout to the Lord, all the earth. And it's as we shout to him that we're actually able to start worshiping with gladness. Because we start remembering that in the midst of all these circumstances, the one who is truly God and the one who is still in control, in the midst of all the brokenness and all the enemies we feel coming against us, that God is still God, and God is still watching over us. In fact, the psalm continues with this verse of comfort. 
Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Reminded of Heidelberg Catechism question and answer one right away. We belong to him. That's our comfort. We belong to Jesus Christ. We're wrapped up in his arms. He chooses us and holds us. It has an echo here of Psalm 46. Be still. Isn't that quite something? You go from shout to this comforting verse that has this refrain in it of God's got you. God's with you. He's, he's right in the middle of you. In, in the midst of this battle, in the midst of all that's coming against you, God's here with you. He hasn't left you. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't abandoned you and said your enemies are going to be stronger this time. He said, I'm with you. I, I've got you. I, I know you. Jesus picks up on this because it's really about the character of God. A God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. A God who reminds us, as we've been talking about the last several weeks, that, that God is with us. That constant refrain, I am with you, do not be afraid. It's part of what we were writing on the wall the last several weeks, these different experiences of, of longing for God and experiencing God and clinging to God's promises. It's part of our refrain, and it, it comes out in God's character, that assurance that I am with you. What we have done here this morning in this baptism is not just to say to Chris and Laura, God promises to be with you as you raise Adele. He does that. But this really is a promise to all of us that God is saying, I'm with you and, and you are mine. There are some traditions that, that they take the baptismal water, sorry, but you're going to get a little wet, and they fling it. And they fling it. And they walk around the whole sanctuary flinging the water so that you feel and are reminded by the touch of the water that God has put his mark on you and said, I've got you. I'm holding on to you. Even if you don't see it, even if you don't feel it, I've got you. Some churches have the baptismal font out every week and they place it in the back so that as you walk into worship, you can just touch the water and be reminded of this very thing. I've got you. I know you. Jesus picked up on it uh, and, and talked about the shepherd image. One of the ideas that, that God uses to assure his people along the way is that the, the sheep would pass under the shepherd's hand. The phrase he uses in Jeremiah a couple times. The sheep will pass under the shepherd's hand. And it was God saying, I will count each one of them. I will know each one of them. That's how close to my sheep I will be. And Jesus says, that's the image I'm going to use and calls himself the good shepherd. The one who knows the sheep by name and who lays down his life for the sheep. God is saying to us in the midst of the battle cry, I have you. I'm holding on to you. Even if you can't hold on to me right now, I'm holding you. And I know you by name. I see you. It's a word of comfort to us today. 
Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. There's really a, a whole bunch of bodily responses here that, that we completely miss in the English. The Hebrew word, words back here have, have movement associated with them. And it's hard for us to understand. But the first one starts off this. The enter his gates with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, the word there is outstretched arms. Just put your arms out in front of you. All right? When in your life have you had your arms out like this? When you're running to your parents? Right? When you're about to pick up your kids? Right? Right? with thanksgiving has this image of outstretched arms. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Joy, desperation, either one works. Both of those expressions, when we are desperate to be picked up by our parents, we run to them with outstretched arms. And when we are joyful to embrace someone we haven't seen in a while, we run with outstretched arms. There's a bodily motion here. The idea of, of thanksgiving and entering into worship had bodily movement. Just as a sidebar, I've talked to a few people who come from other cultures and they have a hard time worshiping in our kind of reformed environments because we sit and don't move. Sometimes you may have heard the, uh, the name the frozen chosen. Yeah. Part of what we are missing out. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your bodies, even. Part of the reason we do simple things of rising and sitting in worship is that it's engaging our bodies in response to God's word and the songs we sing. There is a movement that goes with it. If we understand the words, and we'll cover a few more of them here, there is a whole body response we are being called into as we respond to God's promise that I've got you. I'm holding on to you in the midst of the battle. With thanksgiving, extended arms. The next phrase, with praise. It actually, it actually literally, with singing. Adoration. It's a hymn. Sing a hymn. Sing a song. Use your voice as you come in. Outstretched arms. Coming in, singing a song. And it could be a song of, Lord, save me, save me. And it could be a song of praise you, Lord. You are good and faithful and just. And it could be some of the other songs. Both songs of lament and songs of praise are fitting, but it is coming in with our voices, using all that we have to express what's deep in our heart, in our souls, to let it out before God with praise. And give thanks to him. It changes the words this time instead of the thanksgiving, the first time that was outstretched arm, the give thanks is literally throw up your hands. Cast them upwards. Go ahead. Cast them up. Sometimes we wonder why people start putting their hands up and there's emotional stuff with it and we're not always touchy-feely and emotional and I get it. But there is a bodily response, a literal word in the Hebrew that means throw your hands up before God. And it's in the context of worship. It's throwing your hands up and moving and saying, Yes, Lord! Yes! If you need to picture it a different way, take it as that transition from running towards your parent to having your parent pick you up and hug you. 
and your arms going up and those arms wrapping around you. One more word in here. It goes from arms up to a word that is used most frequently when someone comes before a king. And it's kneeling. This last praise word is one of kneeling. There are some traditions, Christian traditions, that actually put kneelers, they call them little padded padded, uh, steps that are in each of the pews so that during the worship service you can physically kneel. There's something to that because it, it echoes a tradition that is centuries and centuries, centuries old, that in the midst of our worship we would have a bodily response that's not just joyful and reaching up to God, but it is actually acknowledging God as king and bowing down before him. In this psalm, the words in here, each of them have a different bodily response that we are called to. So we're called to come in before God with shouts in the midst of the battle. And we're invited in the midst of that to receive his comfort that he is with us. He knows us. He's holding on to us. And as we begin to realize that and experience it, we're called into worship that has a full-bodied response of outstretched arms, of, of voices singing, of lifting our hands up before God and of kneeling before him. All of them woven in to the way we are called to respond ends with this. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. It's really about a foundation. This is one of the basis where we get that phrase, that refrain we've been saying with the kids. And it's not just a cute thing to say. It's actually a deep reminder of a fundamental truth. God is good. And you say it not just when the good times and the celebration of a baptism in a child. You say it when you have pain in your heart and there's brokenness in the world around us and you are experiencing that, the sense that God is absent and you're wondering where he is and it's in those moments that you also say, God is good. Not just when it's good, but God's good even when I'm suffering and hurting. God is good even when I face the shadow of death. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. We're teaching ourselves to remember this refrain because it points at this reality that God's goodness and his love endures forever. It endures. It makes it through all the crises of our times, the crises of our parents' generation, and the crises that our kids will face and the generations after them. God's faithfulness endures. The word for love here is chesed. We're going to pick that up again next week and talk about God's chesed, God's covenantal commitment to us, his pledging himself to us and saying, I am yours. I choose you. And I'm not going to let you go. And nothing you do and nothing that happens to you and nothing in the world around you can take that away. I am committing myself to you. And the promise of that faithfulness, it's an ongoing, it says from time to time to time, it's got the, this echoing, reverberating sense of it goes from one age to the next to the next. 
And it backs up, the Hebrew does sentence structure a little differently, so it backs up the, the endures forever, that word forever, and it says, from generation to generation, his faithfulness continues. The emphasis in the middle is on that ongoing nature of God's love and God's faithfulness. If we take the good news of Jesus Christ seriously, that God sent his own son God was so committed to us, his love so deep for us, his faithfulness so profound that he sent his only son to die in our place, that he might reconcile us with himself, that he might find a way to forgive our sins and unite us with him again. If we take that seriously, that that is the extent of God's love, then we have no reason to think that God would somehow now back off and withhold his goodness from us. Rather, if God has given us his son, Jesus Christ, how will he not also, along with Christ, give us all good things? It's Paul's word to the Romans, assuring them. And then Paul goes on as he's talking about all of that. He says, you know what? Right now the Spirit is interceding for you. The Spirit is groaning for you right now in the midst of your circumstances. And he adds into that same chapter that Jesus himself is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, praying for us, pleading for us, entering the battle with us. Reminds me then of how the whole of Romans 8 ends. And this is our assurance. In the midst of this psalm, this is where we come back to. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we give thanks. Not for the absence of struggle. Not for the absence of brokenness. Although when that happens and God makes something good and new and whole, we do shout for joy. But because in the midst of all that threatens to undo us and all that threatens to undo God's world, God assures us that he is in the midst of the battle with us, reaching out to us as a father to his children to gather us in and to hold us close, to watch over us and protect us Another part of scripture says, as a mother does her, her baby chicks, wrapping us in with tenderness and compassion, reminding us he has us, so that in the midst of our struggle, we are able to say, God is good. All the time, all the time, even now, God is good. Let's pray. We need you. Oh, do we need you, Lord. The song says every hour we need you. We need you to set us free from our own sins that seem to bind us and, and drive hope out of us. We need to, you to set us free from the sins of the world that, that continue to plague us and to degrade people left and right. We need you to enter in and to save us from a creation that is groaning and, and 
broken and lives that are upset and destroyed. We need you to come and make all things right. We thank you for your promises throughout Scripture that you will be with us. We thank you for giving evidence that in Jesus Christ you are making all things new, that you have refused to abandon us but have drawn near us even in the midst of our brokenness, that you are rescuing us from our sin and giving us new life. Thank you. Help us to respond with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength to allow our bodies even to respond to you with uplifted hands and outstretched arms, with kneeling before you and falling on our faces to know and remember that you are God. Teach us your ways, Lord. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen.